If you would turn in your Bibles to the book of James, I do have the verse that we'll be covering today, James 1.1, on your handout, and also a section from Acts 15 as some historical background. I hope that you have a good study Bible that you can dig into God's Word with. I've used the uh, ESV study Bible, more recently the Reformation study Bible, and much of what you're going to hear today you can find in the introduction before the book of James, you know, that, that section before you get in the text of Scripture where study Bibles will outline the author, the date, the occasion, the themes, where is Christ in this book. And so um, I would commend to you a, a good study Bible or even some commentaries as we start through this book of James, this series. I've really enjoyed going through the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes in, in kind of back-to-back sermon series because those are the wisdom books of the Old Testament. And when I was asking the elders for some input on what, what should be my next sermon series, someone suggested, well, James is the Proverbs of the New Testament. And it truly is a, a book of wisdom. And so as I've dug into it and studied some more, I'm excited to, to really help unfold that book to you, to challenge you how I've been challenged in my faith, and to help to, to grow our faith together. Uh, the letter of James, I've entitled this series, Living Faith for Trying Times. I chose this title for the exposition of James for several reasons, but first, James makes a critical distinction for us, the distinction between a living faith and any other kind of faith. Anything that is less than a living faith will not avail because a a faith that simply has mental assent to Jesus' existence is the same faith as the demons have, but that does them no good. Also, living faith trusts in Christ, trusts in His finished work on the cross. It rests in His imputed righteousness. And that kind of faith is going to result in a changed life. It's not the change of life that merits your salvation, your justification. But because God has given you a living faith, it's going to be a lively faith that shows fruit. The fruitful obedience is not the grounds for your acceptance, for your justification, but rather it's the evidence that that faith is genuine, a living faith. Now, the second reason I chose living faith for trying times is because we live in trying times. Does anybody want to debate me on that? No, I don't think so. We feel the weight of living in a fallen world, in in living in a time where there are testing and trials. And James himself walks us through many of those same topics. He deals with temptation. He deals with trials, with suffering, with conflict, with division, among other difficulties. It's the same difficulties that we as believers face today in our age. So today, let's open James. Living faith for trying times. Follow along as I read God's holy and inspired and inerrant word, beginning with Acts 15. The whole assembly fell silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul describing the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they had finished speaking, James declared, Brothers, listen to me. Simon told us how God first visited the Gentiles to take to them a people to be his own. 
And then verse 19, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not cause trouble for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has, not, has been proclaimed in every city from ancient times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. And James 1.1, 1, 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes of the dispersion, greetings. Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you for the book of James, and we thank you for this epistle written to believers in the first century, but just as applicable to us in 2022. Lord, I pray that as we open your word, your spirit would do his work of illumining the scriptures so that we would see what you have to teach us. And Lord, you've told us that unless we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, we can't understand those things that are spiritually discerned, namely your word and the truth of it. So Lord, we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit to make us to understand your word. And beyond that, Lord, we are weak and we need the power of the Holy Spirit to strengthen us. Lord, as we read through and walk through together this book of James, we'll be exhorted and encouraged and challenged in so many ways. So we really do, Lord, confess our weakness, our dependence on you to help us to learn and to grow and to bear fruit for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think it would be fair to say that without exception, nobody knows you better than your, fa- your family. There, there may be a few exceptions, but the people who know you best are your parents, your brothers and sisters, people that you live with, people that you've grown up with, especially through your childhood, even into your teens and young adult years, particularly when you're living in the family home. Your family, your brothers, your sisters, they know you best. They know you in the good times and the bad times. They know if what you say lines up with what you do. They know if the public you, the view that people see on public and on social media, lines up with the private you, how you really do live out and conduct your life behind closed doors. It's interesting to me as my children grow into adulthood, 18, 20, 22, and 24, thereabouts, they're growing to a point where they know each other so well that they can ask questions of one another and get counsel, can get advice. Um, They can share into the other person's lives and say, you know, have you noticed this about yourself? Do you know this about you? Because they've grown to know each other so well. And that can be really valuable. Now, I want you to think of Jesus for a moment. Jesus lived only 33 years on the earth before his crucifixion. He was never married, and he really only went on the road teaching the last three years of his life. So, if you wanted to know what Jesus was like, if you wanted people who could tell you what Jesus was like, how he lived on a day-to-day basis, I think his family would be a prime source to know who Jesus is, what he thinks, what he would say, what he would do. Could you imagine being Jesus' brother or sister? 
Jesus being perfect in every way. I mean, he went through those terrific twos into the tremendous teens. There was no terrible about it. And if you're already that, that child in the family, that, that sibling who thinks, I'm not the perfect child, it's one of the others, every one of Jesus' siblings were in the same boat as you because Jesus was perfect literally in every way without sin. So, don't you think his brothers and sisters saw every facet of his life? Was he consistent with what he would say outside of the home to what he would say inside the home? How did he live out having a relationship with his heavenly Father in practical ways? What would Jesus do? They would know by seeing him throughout their life. So, who better than Jesus' brother James to teach us, to help us to know what living faith looks like in trying times. I kind of tip my hand to the first question that we're going to consider of who. I think that James, the brother of Jesus, is the James that is the author of this book. But there are two other James mentioned in the Bible. The first James is uh, James, the brother of John, he was martyred around 43 A.D., and he was one of the disciples. We see in Acts 12, it says, about, the time, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So John, his brother, wrote several books that are in the New Testament. Maybe it stands to reason that his brother James was the author of this book. But he died early on in 43, and there were, the, the believers were scattered around. And it seems to me that if James, the brother of John, was the one that wrote this, we might read James 1.1, and it would say, James, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to indicate his standing within that circle. But another one of Jesus' apostles was named James. He is James, the son of Alphaeus, and that's what we know about James. <laughs> um, there's things extra-biblical, maybe, that we can learn about that James, but just because we don't know something about that author doesn't mean that he couldn't have written the, uh, the book of James. We don't really know much about Jude either, but we accept his authorship. But again, we might expect if this James, the son of Alphaeus, was the author. He would have said, James, an apostle of Jesus Christ. The third James, the one who I believe is the author of the book of James, Paul refers to him in Galatians 1.19 as, uh, he said, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. James, the Lord's brother, is referred to in, in other uh, places throughout uh, the book of Acts and even in 1 Corinthians. Uh, Douglas Moo in considering this subject of who is the author of James. He says, when all the data are considered, I think that the simplest solution is to accept the verdict of the early Christians. The early church counted James, the brother of Jesus, as the author. He says, the letter was written by James of Jerusalem, the Lord's brother. Nothing in the letter is inconsistent with this conclusion, and several, albeit minor and indecisive points, favor it. So that said, what do we know about James, the brother of John, or James, the brother of Jesus, growing up and seeing Jesus start his earthly ministry. Well, his entire family, save Mary, didn't believe 
in Jesus until really after the resurrection. We have a few occasions from the Gospels. In John 7, verse 2, we see at the Feast of Booths was at hand. So Jesus' brothers said to him, leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. So we, we see that those that were even closest to him, his biological brother through Mary, did not believe on him. Again, in Mark 3, verse 20, we read, Then he went home, Jesus, and he, uh, the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. So James was one of those who didn't believe in Jesus. In fact, Jesus was a troubled man who needed his family to step in. That's kind of the impression that we get from John and from the Gospel of Mark. But later, something radically changes in James's life. He, met, he meets Jesus as the resurrected Savior. We don't see any accounts of any of Jesus' siblings at the crucifixion. We see Mary is at the crucifixion but no other biological relatives that we can discern. And John is appointed to take care of Mary, Jesus' mother. Wouldn't it fall to one of the other siblings if they were there? But we read in 1 Corinthians 15, this, this great chapter on the resurrection and Paul's explanation of Jesus appearing to many. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. James, singled out, specially seen as having witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Later in Acts, in chapter 12, we read of James joining together with some of the other Christians who had gathered to worship. It says in uh, Acts twelve seventeen. But Peter, motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. James was amongst the other brothers, the brothers in Christ. The biological brother of Jesus is now a spiritual brother with Christ and the other brothers. He went on to become a leader in the church. It says in Acts 15, it, it describes for us in Acts 15 that, that James was a leader in the Jerusalem church. We, we don't even, we don't only see him lead, but in this account we get some insight into what his mindset was towards a very critical issue of what do the works of the law, what is the law of Moses, and the works that are done have to do with faith in Jesus Christ. This issue of faith and works is going to be something that we're going to have to wrestle with. What does the book of James teach? And so knowing that James presided over 
let me just call it what it is. It's the first presbytery in the Bible, right? Acts 15 says there are delegates that are coming together from the various churches around the region to all gather in Jerusalem. Let's unpack that a little bit here in Acts 15. If you want to turn over to there, you can. In the beginning of the chapter, it says that some, came, some men came down from Judea who were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. So this teaching is starting to circulate in the churches. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. Well, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem. Hey, come from our gathering, go up to Jerusalem, meet with the other leaders of the churches, and let's figure this out. Let's debate it. Let's settle this matter so we can be of one understanding. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through all these regions, and they had great joy when they gathered together with the brothers. When they came to the council, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they rose up and says, said, it's necessary to circumcise them in order for them to keep the law of Moses. So here the pressure is those who were Pharisees and those who were keeping the Jew Jewish traditions were insisting that the Gentiles, the new believers in Jesus Christ, had to keep this aspect of the law, this ceremonial aspect of the law. In verse 6 in chapter 15, we read, the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So they got to gather. They got to consider the matter. Peter gets up, and he gives his perspective on things. And we would expect Peter, as one of the more outspoken disciples and followers of Jesus, that he would, he would be the leader here. Well, he starts the conversation, it seems, but another really rises up to the leadership. In verse 11, um, it, it says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how, that's how Peter concludes his talk. And the assembly falls silent. In verse 12, they listened to Barnabas and Paul. They related the signs and wonders that God had done through them. And after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. I mean, that's kind of a statement of authority. He is a leader amongst all of the churches here that are gathered together in Jerusalem. He says, brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take for them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. So he's opening the Old Testament scriptures and he's teaching them that this is in line with what um, God is doing to restore a remnant, we see in verse 17. In verse 19, therefore, my judgment is... Now, he's not speaking on his own accord only. It's in concert with those others who are leaders from the churches. He says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write them and to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from that which has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. A leader. That's who is writing this epistle, the epistle of James. James went on to be martyred at 
uh, at AD 62. There were an angry mob of Pharisees outside the temple, and they threw him off of the parapet of the, of the temple, and he, he um, was injured, but they finally killed him. It's an amazing story of his martyrdom. If you have time to look it up sometime, he was revered for his godliness. He was known as James the Just, even. He was known as a man of prayer. He was said to have knees of camels. That's what everyone wants, right? I've got those camel knees. Well, it's because as camels kneel down and hold their weight, he was one that was known to be often and for long times, long periods of time in prayer. Now, this leader of God's people, a higher-ranking presbyter there in the early church, the brother of Jesus, describes himself this way as the servant of God. I think it's so key for us to understand where humility is necessary. Here, the word servant is the word bondservant. It's doulos. It means slave. There's another word. A bondservant is not one who is a hired worker, uh, somebody who was like a day laborer. They'd be paid for their wages, and then they were free to come and go as they pleased. But a bondservant was one that was bonded because he was purchased. He was purchased by a master and lord. Well, how does this affect James's view of himself? He is not his own. He has been bought with a price. And that's the case for all of us who are in Christ. Because of Christ purchasing our salvation on the cross, we are then enslaved to Him. He is our master now. He is our Lord. It's interesting, Thomas Manton says this in his commentary, the highest ranks in the church are still only servants. James understood this. No matter how prominent he got, no matter how many people looked to him for advice and counsel, listened to him open the Scriptures, he kept a humble heart. He was a servant of God. And he expands that servant of God description further in verse 1 of James 1. He also expands it to being also and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, here's the brother of Jesus calling his brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord being that imperial name of majesty. He is the ruler. He is the one that you should bow down to and bow down before. But James grew up with him. Uh, James played with him. James, James knew Jesus as, as, as a person, not simply as the Lord. But he makes, careful, makes a careful decision not to say, oh, yeah, I'm Jesus' brother. That doesn't have any clout for him. That's, that's not what he uses. And his high ranking in the church was not on account of him being the brother of Jesus, but rather being a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thomas Manton also said about this biological relation, he said, Mary was happier having Christ in her heart than in her womb and James in being Christ's servant rather than being his brother. That's a beautiful thing to be a biologically related, but it's a glorious thing to be connected as a 
brother in Christ and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe we read the word Lord so often in our uh, order of service as we go throughout scriptures and it may have lost its impact on us that Jesus Christ is Lord means we are indebted to Him, everything that we have. And maybe this word duty has gotten to take on a negative connotation in your mind, but don't let it be so. Having done our duty to Christ as servants, it's because that He has purchased us for Himself, because He's made us His own. When did this, um, when did this letter get written? Well, it seems like it was going to be between the middle 40s to A.D. 62 when James was martyred. So we have those outer points, but I think we can narrow it in even further. It's interesting the way that uh, the different introductions and the commentators will go about this, but see if this resonates with you. You know, there's this debate a little bit amongst, well, there, a lot, about James's view on salvation and good works and Paul's view of salvation and works. How are you justified? Paul says you're justified by faith, not in works. Otherwise, you can boast. And we read in James that there's this phrase he uses that you are justified by your works, and it sounds like these two don't make any sense. How do they even fit together? The Bible has contradictions. Which, do I, which are we going to throw out? And people have gotten down on James and said, well, that's the one that's got to go. But if we understand a little bit of the history and what was going on, and I think even the, these various teachings, uh, Douglas Moo in his commentary says, he points to the relationship between James's teaching on justification in chapter 2 and then Paul's teaching on justification. He says, the historical scenario I suggest is that Paul's preaching was misunderstood by some and they began using the slogan, justification by faith alone, as an excuse for neglecting discipleship and obedient Christian living. So a certain sect of people who heard Paul teach were misunderstanding. And so what James attacks is this perverted Paulism. He may not have even known that they got it from Paul. If he had known he would have attacked that perversion differently if he knew that what Paul was truly saying about faith and works. So it seems like James, the epistle was written before James and Paul would have had a conversation about this teaching. And where did they have a conversation about this teaching? Well, at that first presbytery, that Jerusalem council. And we know from history that the Jerusalem council that Paul and James would have met together at was in 48 or 49. So a date in the mid-40s, maybe 44, if you had to pin me down on it, would make sense. That helps to give us a framework of some of the teaching and what was going on. Where did this epistle get read? Where was it sent to? A letter has to have an address of where it's going. And so James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the author to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. What is the 12 tribes in the dispersion? Well, the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel we're very familiar with from the Old Testament. The dispersion, the spreading out amongst other nations, not kept together as one nation, that dispersion happened in a, a really strong sense when the Babylonian captivity and the Assyrian captivity took place. 
when those um, 12 tribes of Judah, Judah were set apart or put into different nations. Now, there is prophecy of the rejoining together of those 12 tribes of the dispersion in Ezekiel 11. It says, Therefore, says the Lord, thus says the Lord God, though I removed them far among the nations and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for uh, while in these countries where they had gone. Therefore, say, thus says the Lord, I will gather you from all the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been get scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. They will come there, and, and they will remove from it all its detestable things and its abominations. I will give them one heart, one new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh, and I will give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes, keep my rules, and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God." Now, I think this is pointing to some restoration of a remnant, God preserving them for sure, but when we see Jesus arrive on the scene, Israel is under occupation by the Roman authorities. They're, they're not gathered together in a real genuine sense. There was the coming together under Ezra and Nehemiah, but when these words are spoken to the 12, 12 tribes of the dispersion, um, they were under the oppression of the Roman governors. And we see this uh, inscription on First Peter. The beginning, the greeting that First Peter uh, has is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Well, here they are again, the Jewish people being dispersed, but it's at this point, when Peter's writing, he's not just writing to Jewish people. He is, but the Christians are undergoing this persecution. They're being dispersed just as well. So there's this mixture of, yes, Jewish believers in Christ and Gentile believers in Christ are now being spread out. But these are one people of God. And this is important for us to understand. In Matthew 19, when Jesus speaks to his disciples that would become apostles, he says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, the apostles, will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, that's interesting. They're the apostles. They're going to be sitting on thrones judging the 12 tribes. Why is that so? Well, Paul says in Galatians 3 that we should know that those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, "If you in you shall all the nations be blessed, so that those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This will find fulfillment in the book of Revelation. We read about 12,000 people from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were 12 gates on the heavenly Jerusalem with the names of those 12 tribes. But this is not just where Jewish Christians will, will live. It's where all of God's people will be gathered together. Why is this significant? Well, Ligon Duncan says, James is taking the language of the Old Testament and he's applying it to the New Testament church. And in fact, he's taking a very old title for Old Testament Israel that stems from the time that Israel was in the days of the patriarchs and even in the wilderness, and he's applying it to Christians. One people 
under Christ. Think of Israel in the desert, he says. That's who James says you are. Alec Moitier points, uh, puts it this way. They are the Lord's 12 tribes, and they are dispersed through a menacing and testing world. Their homeland is elsewhere. They have not yet come to take their abode there. Their present lot is to feel the weight of the pressures and the lure of this world's temptation and the insidious, ever-present encouragement to conform to the standards of their pagan environment. They are the Lord's people indeed, but not yet home. We are the people of the dispersion. We're not in our heavenly home where God has intended us to land. Why did Peter or why did James write this for the dispersed people of God? It's considered a general epistle. It's supposed to go to all the churches. It's not written to just one church, the church of Ephesus or 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 um Philippi or Rome. This is to go around the churches. It's considered by some the epistle of the royal law in Chapter 2, James talks about this royal law of love, to love your neighbor as yourself. We're going to see throughout the book of James, how do you live out Jesus' command to love your neighbor as yourself? We're going to see it's an epistle for practical living. Uh, Yes, you believe, even the demons believe, but how do you live? Your orthodox understanding and faith needs to be expressed in orthodox living. It's an epistle for practical living. Why did he write this? He, he wrote this as a Proverbs of the New Testament. It, it has general or exhortations. It has uh, metaphors and, and illustrations that help us to think even proverbially. He mirrors the way that Jesus speaks in his teachings. He doesn't quote Jesus directly, but similar ways to the Sermon on the Mount and some of the proverbial sayings that Jesus will say, just look uncannily similar to the way that James presents things. So what do we think? How are we to see this opening of James? James is, critical, is criticized sometimes as a book that preaches law over grace. And I don't think that that's a fair assessment. We'll definitely look more closely at this in the future, in future sermons, But people will put Paul's view of justification by faith alone in opposition to James' view of living faith that expresses itself in works. The the criticism is really unfounded. I think it misses truly how valuable the book of James is for the Christian life. I think we will find it preeminently valuable because it helps us to see how, how beautifully it comports with the gospel of grace, the gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. The theme that we'll see throughout James is that this living faith is never alone. And those who are bought and purchased to be servants of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ are going to live that faith out and manifest it in the way that their lives honor and glorify their master. The grace that justifies us and makes us right in the sight of God, now is the same grace that's going to sanctify us, which is that process of growing where we progressively die to sin and we live to righteousness. I'm going to close with a word from Dan Doriani, a professor that Tony and I had in seminary. He says in his commentary that he believes that the climax of James occurs in James 4, 6. 
James completes his indictment of, the human, uh, of human sin in 4-5, and then he says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Doriani says, the double mention of God's grace in the rhetorical climax of the book shows that the gospel of James is the message of God's grace to sinners. May God give us more grace as we seek to live as servants of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, that your word is so rich and that there's um, so much for us to mine out of these uh, treasures, treasures to mine uh, that will help us in our lives, that will encourage us, will challenge us. And Lord, we thank you as we've just dipped our toe into the book of James, that there is so much for us so that we can live lives that will Uh, glorify you as uh, your servants. We want to bring honor to our master. Lord, would you give us a a sense of our duty empowered by your grace so that we would be excited and diligent uh, servants that love our master and want to glorify him. We pray that you would do this in our church for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.